presence. And Lord, we thank you that you're a God who is an intimate God. You're not a God who is far removed from us, but through Christ you have brought, we have been brought near to you. And uh, Lord, in our relationship with Christ, we are secure in you, saved from our sin to the uttermost. And Lord, we thank you for that grace, that mercy that you have, by your sovereign will, extended to us in our lost condition. We could not find God. We could not choose God. The Bible says that we were doomed in our own sins to an everlasting punishment in hell. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts to the truth of the gospel, the truth of your word. We pray that we would listen intently with hearts that desire to be taught the word of God and to be edified and built up. And, Father, we thank you. We pray for our children as they're dismissed to their classes, that you would bless them, bless their teachers. And uh, we ask that you would open their hearts to your word as well as it's explained to them in their classes in a way in which they can understand it. We we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You can turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. I kind of had a couple more messages in Proverbs, but I I decided I'm going to wait on that and kind of press through (laughs) Uh, Matthew. So we're, we're just starting the 14th chapter of Matthew. I've been away for it for about six, seven weeks. I want to thank David for filling in last week uh, in the middle of listening to his message. And um, thanks for Hassan, for his friend, for leading worship. I appreciate their, their ministry. Um, today we want to talk about a saint, a sinner, and a savior. And uh, we're going to look basically at the fate of John the Baptist, what happened to him. Um, as it's recorded in God's Word. So as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14, this passage, the first 13 chapters of this book, of this chapter in this book of Matthew, is probably one of the most uh, intriguing stories in the Word of God. Um, It's an account of what actually happened to John the Baptist. And uh, it could rival any of the modern-day soap operas when you begin to look at what is going on here in this passage. But it also shows us just how far people can fall in their sinfulness away from God. And in that fall, usually, there is a fear in the heart of men. There's a fear that only Christ can conquer. And uh, there's been many people throughout history who have faced that fear, the fear of an eternity lost apart from their Creator. And we see this fear in the heart of Herod, the Tetrarch, as he's called here. But I want to remember where we've come from. As we came into this chapter, chapter 14, as we come into this chapter, chapter 14, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came and he he presented himself as the Messiah and he has been rejected. And now with his disciples, he continues to preach about the kingdom of God. Uh, One Bible scholar, Schofield, calls this section in Matthew the ministry of the rejected king. Jesus has arrived, he's presented himself as king, he announced his kingdom, and the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, the king, has come, and yet his own people rejected him. And among those people, as we went through the various parables, we saw there are people who will believe, and that's what those parables were about. It told about some people that will believe. So the Lord and his twelve begin to present the kingdom and the gospel message to those folks. And as we come to chapter 14, we see basically eight incidences here that are recorded uh, from the end of chapter 13 until the beginning of chapter 16. And so we're going to be looking at these eight different incidences as we work our way through these chapters. And they show us exactly how people respond to the message of the gospel. And you remember that in the parables in Matthew 13, it describes that some will believe and some will what? Reject, right? Some will embrace Christ and some will reject Christ. 
And that's the way it is in the age in which we live, the church age. That's what really he's describing. He's just kind of describing how it's going to be for us. As we go out and we share the gospel, not everybody is going to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, not everybody is going to embrace that truth. And as we looked at those eight uh, different, uh, or as we look at these different eight incidences as we get into them, uh, two of the eight show people who believe. And six show people who do not believe. And it's basically the same ratio as the parable of the soils, remember? As we began in chapter 13. We saw the city of Nazareth, and that was the first illustration of people who were unbelieving, people who were rejecting Christ. And now we come to this incident here in chapter 14, and it's, we see the story of Herod the Tetrarch. And that's what he's called in verse 1. It says, at, the time, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. He's an illustration of this unbelief, of the resistant, of the reject, the ones who reject Christ, the, of the stony ground, the hard ground. And the Holy Spirit put this in his word for us to learn something from today. Mainly that there will be many who are hard-hearted and will reject the message of the kingdom. But as you look at chapter 14, we also are reminded that there's two other Gospels that also tell the same account, just from a different perspective. It's kind of like if you see an accident on a corner, different people are going to have different things. Well, that guy crossed the line. Oh, no, this guy was driving the radio. Oh, no, he was driving the... You know, you get different stories. Well, they're all basically true when you surmise and you put them all together. Same way with the Gospels. They're told from different man's perspective as they wrote. And so Matthew is presenting Christ as king, so he's writing from a certain perspective. Mark is presenting the servant. He's writing from a certain perspective and so forth. And so we see these different accounts. Those accounts, if you want to look at those, are in Luke 9 and Mark 6. But we're going to hopefully spend most of our time in Matthew 14 this morning. The last passage dealt with a town. If you remember, at the end of chapter 13, a town of very common people, who opposed the king, who opposed the Messiah. And here, in chapter 14, I find it interesting that we see a king, a tetrarch, who opposes the true king, Jesus Christ. And so as we work through this passage, it's going to be fascinating. It kind of unfolds to us this story of actually what happened to John the Baptist, what was Herod's reaction to Christ, and all the, the details of this story are just kind of interesting. But the forerunner of Christ was who? John the Baptist, right? Well, we're going to find out what happened to him. Um, the last passage showed the treatment of the Messiah. This one shows the treatment of the forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger of the Messiah, the agent of the Messiah. The last passage showed the rejection and the resistance primarily based on jealousy. Remember, his hometown people thought, who is this guy? We grew up with this guy. And he's coming to our town saying, remember, they, they, just, they just thought, they didn't think very highly of, of, of Jesus. They rejected him. And this one shows the rejection and resistance based primarily on fear. Herod was fearful of something. But both of them have at the bottom, at the base, as any rejection does, Selfish pride, because that's what ultimately will damn any soul to hell, is a pride in the heart that says, nope, I'm going to do it all my way, I got everything together, and, and I'm just going to continue down this path, in spite of what I hear, in spite of what I see. That kind of pride will damn you to hell. It, 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 it forms an unwillingness in the heart of people to even give up anything that they're embracing to embrace Christ. Well, let's look at this passage, and I'll just read it for us and kind of make some comments as we go, and then we'll kind of get into our outline here, looking at the saint who is John the Baptist, the sinner who is Herod, and then also the Savior, Christ. But look at, with you, follow along with me as I read Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. At the time, at that time, it's interesting that that word is a, 
what they call a, uh, an indefinite phrase. In other words, it's, it's not chronos, it's kairos, which means just a general season. It's not talking about a specific time on the clock. It's just saying around the time of, in the general season, in the general time of Christ's teaching and his preaching and his disciples' preaching. See, at that general time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So we meet this first character, Herod the Tetrarch. He's called Tetrarch. Tetrarch comes basically from a mathematical word that means a fourth part. And what Herod uh, the great did is he divided up the kingdom into four parts. And he had three sons, and each of them had a part. And so here we find Herod the Tetrarch. He's not really a king. He's more like a governor. And it's important to kind of understand that aspect of his, his rule here. He's not a uh, supreme ruler. He's just kind of a, a person who the, 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 uh, the, the, king, the king in Rome would basically send out these people and they would be given governorship over a certain group of people. And uh, that's, that's what, in verse 9, he's called a king because it says the king was sorry. But that's a very generous use of that word. It doesn't mean a supreme ruler at all. In fact, he even sought to be king. We're going to find a little out about that. Um, one time he tried to, uh, he went to Rome and he asked um, the ruler to make him a king. And in, in Rome, if you know anything about their government, there's only one king. And uh, primarily because his wife wanted to be called queen, <laughs> she made him go and, and ask to be a king. But he really wasn't a king. Um, he was just this little governor kind of a guy. And so it's, it's kind of an important thing to remember as we work our way through this text. So Herod the Tetrarch, uh, he, he ruled over this certain area. And that certain area contained a, a ministry area that Jesus very much ministered into. But you remember at the birth of Christ, Herod the Great, remember he went out and he slaughtered all those babies trying to kill the Christ child. And for whatever reason, we believe that um, this individual kind of dwelt in the, in the land there near uh, Tiberias. And we have no account of Jesus, which is kind of the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, very beautiful place. We had uh, a dinner there uh, at a place called the Deck or decks, or whatever it is, and, and uh, with David Hawking and his ministry and everything. Very, actually, he fell off a chair there. It was, it was he'd kill me if I told you that, but uh, he uh, <laughs> just took a tumble, you know. And he's a big guy. I was sitting right next to him, and I thought, do I catch him or what? I thought, no, I'm going to let him go, you know. It was, uh, it was kind of an interesting time. But um, it's a very beautiful place. And, uh, but there's no account of Christ ever going to there, to that place. It's almost like he avoided that because this is where Herod dwelt. He didn't want to deal with them. And so we have these four Herods. There's different Herods in the, in the Bible. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa II. And Herod the Great has long been dead at this time. And Herod Antipas, this guy, Herod Tetrarch, one of Herod the Great's son, has been ruling about 32 years. And so he ruled in this area of Galilee. And I just thought it was interesting that Christ totally avoided that area uh, based primarily on um, him uh, being there. And so it says at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So he wasn't actively seeking out Christ, but he heard the report. In other words, remember what Christ was doing at this time. They were healing people. All these incredible miracles were going on. And he heard this report about the Christ, about Jesus, probably from people, probably from uh, you know, different people in his, his, under his uh, family, different things like that. And he said to his servants, look at what he says, this is John the Baptist. <laughs> he is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. This is another indication 
that whenever people saw Christ working in the New Testament, they never questioned it to be supernatural. Isn't that kind of funny? They never denied it. When he healed people, I mean, it was right in front of them. I mean, they couldn't deny it. And it was so incredibly thorough, and it was, you know, it wasn't, oh, you know, I got a sore stomach, you know, I'll be healed, you know. It wasn't that, or oh, my back, or, you know, I got a migraine, or whatever. No, these are real, legitimate healings, people being blind, people being raised from the dead, all these things. I mean, when we hear about that happening today, it's in some far foreign missionary land where it can never be confirmed, okay? And so when you stop and you think about it, here is somebody who really did miraculous works, and the word got back to the king, the leader, the governor in that area. And his reaction, it says his servants, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. See, this was bad news for Herod the Tetrarch. Very bad news. Because he's the guy that actually put John the Baptist to death. And it says there that he thought that John the Baptist came back to life. So you you miss a lot of stuff if you just read through this. Sometimes you read through the Gospels, oh yeah, that's a nice little story. But just the fact that he believed that he rose from the dead is very interesting. Because he was a Sadducee, and Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So that was very interesting when I saw that. That's why you can tell the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they are sad, you see. Okay? So if you ever get those two mixed up, that's the main difference. So he had this fear in his heart that something he had done in his past had come back, and now it is haunting him. It is haunting him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought of some of the things that maybe you did in your life, in the past, Have you ever thought of those things coming back to somehow haunt you? I mean, it's one thing to have a life before you come into Christ and you're a new creation and everything, you know, is forgiven. But, beloved, we're not perfect people. (laughs) Last time I checked. We're sinners just like everybody else. And I, pro- I, I, I know for a fact that if we went around the room and we were able to somehow project on this video screen some of the things that you've done since you have been a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been a follower of Him, you would be horrified. And so would probably the person being seated next to you. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have the potential to sin in the most hideous, grotesque, disgusting way. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because this story that we're about to get into here is rather sick. It's a gross story. And it shows how far someone can fall away from God. And somehow we think that if we got our ducks in order financially and we're taking care of our family and we got our work and we got this and, you know, and we help out around the house, we do all these things, we're a good spouse to our loved one and all this, that somehow that we've risen above the potential to sin. Because we come to church, we sing the songs and we read the Bible and we do our devotions, we do all these things. Somehow, sometimes we, we think that, you know, yeah, that's what that person did. I would never do that. And the Bible is very clear that that's not a good reaction to have, a good response to have, because the Bible says that all of our hearts are desperately wicked. And it's only in Christ that we have the power to overcome that sin. So he heard this report about Jesus Christ, and he thought, this is John. They said, 
to his servants, John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. We're going to find some different things out about John the Baptist and Herod as we look at different things, and this is all just basically way of introduction. Over in Luke chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him and was perplexed because it, said, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? He was in prison because that's where Herod put him. And when he was in prison, he heard of Christ doing all this work. And remember, we went through this passage where he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you really the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? Remember we went through that? And the way we explained that was they believed in their mind that the Messiah was going to come and set up the rule here on earth right now. And because they rejected Christ, they rejected the kingdom, so the kingdom couldn't be set up in their midst. It will one day be set up. The kingdom of Christ will be set up here on earth, the Bible says, for a thousand years. Those who are in Christ will come and rule and minister with Christ here on the earth. But he heard this thing, and it was just kind of a common thing. It kind of shows his, it's a little edgy. Something's going on in his heart. And he got the same kind of report that the disciples of Jesus gave him in Matthew 16. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and the other one says, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. And Christ said, you go back and you tell John the Baptist what's going on, what I'm doing, ministering to the poor, I'm doing all these things, healing people, and and he'll understand. And they went back and they told John the Baptist that, and he accepted that he was truly the Savior. But he assumes that this Christ that he's hearing of, this Jesus who's doing all these miraculous things, is somehow John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now, this isn't in chronological order. This story is told kind of like a flashback. It opens up, it tells us a little bit about Herod the Tetrarch. He heard this report about Jesus and his, his work and everything, and he thought, oh no, this is John the Baptist coming back from the dead. And then Matthew explains to us why Herod had that reason why he had that that reaction. It says in verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And you say, well, what in the world is going on here? Well, you notice that he had him arrested. This is something that happened. He's probably been in prison at this time. John the Baptist... um, uh, at, the, at the time of the, the thing, he's dead, but at the time of this incident, but when he was placed in prison, probably there about a year. And he was in this place that's on near the Dead Sea, and it's just a horrible place, a horrible prison to be in. There's no light, and it's just the stench, and, and it's actually, they have some of the ruins that they found out there, and it's just a horrible place to be in. And that's where John the Baptist was. And you say, well, why would Herod just pick somebody out and throw him in prison? Why would he throw him in prison? You have to understand, it tells us. It says, for the sake of Herodias. That's Herod's current wife. He was married. And he divorced his other wife. And then he married his brother Philip's wife. Talk about a soap opera. I mean, this is some sick stuff. And guess who comes along as all this is transpiring? John the Baptist. Well, we're going to find out some things about John the Baptist that doesn't make him the most popular guy on the block at this time. So here you find Herod divorcing his first wife, who, by the way, was the daughter, a niece, I think, of another uh, uh, ruler, king, And uh, he was ticked off at Herod. Herod was kind of painted in a corner here. The Bible says that he wanted to kill him, but he couldn't because of the crowds. It says, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to to have her. In other words, John went right up to his face 
and told him, what you're doing is not right. It's not right on various points. And there's a, there's a lot of, of background information there. But it's important to understand that when, when Herod heard this about Christ, he thought, oh no, this is John the Baptist come back because he had killed John the Baptist. He had had, her, had him killed on the account of his own wife who was ticked off at John the Baptist because John the Baptist told her just the way it was. Well, let's look at this story a little bit more deeply. The man who killed John was Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod's first wife was the daughter of an Arabian king. And so Herod had divorced that woman, as I said, to marry this lady who was his brother's wife. Obviously, he's not the most popular guy on the block either, even in his own family. And so you can imagine. I mean, it's kind of like Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, you know, when you got some in-laws that are kind of all mixed up and are confused and maybe they do something wrong or whatever. I mean, the last thing you talk about, right, is that issue at the dinner, right? You know, you know hey, well, how's the drinking coming there, Charlie? You had a rehab? I mean, you just don't do that. Right? I mean, it's just like an unspoken rule. You just don't do that. Well, everybody understood that except John the Baptist. John the Baptist was very plain spoken, and he just basically told it the way it was. And so, at that point, he got thrown into prison. And uh, he was in prison there probably uh, for quite a while, and, and his... Um, his, his uh, Herod, basically, who put him there, was doing it not because he hated John the Baptist. He was more ticked off because his wife hated John the Baptist for saying what was the truth. So when John denounced Herod for his immoral behavior, um, which had little to do with the divorce issue, um, which wasn't allowed under Jewish or Roman law, uh, or was allowed under Jewish or Roman law, but it was more the problem that Herod actually had a second marriage to, marriage to Herodias, who is his brother's wife. That's a little odd. And it's condemned in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. You shouldn't take your brother's wife. Kind of interesting. They did it anyway. So John didn't speak mainly out about the marriage about the, uh, the, the divorce issue, but it was like who he was married to. He actually married his brother's wife. And it says there that when he spoke out because John had said to him, that almost makes it sound like he went in and he said, hey, Herod, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Okay, I did my job and I left. Right? That's kind of what the English makes it say. That's not what, what, what it says in the original language. What it says in the original language is basically that he kept on saying to Herod over and over and over and over. What you're doing is not right. He denounced the marriage. And basically, he he did it so much, he ended up in prison. And it says there that he wanted... To kill him in verse 5, he wanted to put him to death, but he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. See, Herod wasn't stupid. He was just sinful. And so here's Herodias. She's ticked off at John for criticizing her marriage in this way. And Herodias has been urging Herod to do something. Come on, do something, do something. Well, look at what happens. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, back in their culture, Jews basically didn't celebrate birthdays, which was kind of a front. just showed you how far Herod had really slipped away from his roots. In a lot of countries, they don't celebrate birthdays. Africa, a lot of times they don't celebrate birthdays. They don't, they don't know when they were born, frankly. 
They don't have a date pinned down. It's an American, you know, and European thing mostly. Some countries, they don't even deal with that. And so they were celebrating Herod's birthday. And you have to understand the celebration here. It's not like, you know, I had over here in the fellowship hall, you know, some ribs and some food and family and friends and, you know, nice little celebration. I mean, we're talking an all-out, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but just kind of a, a perverted party. That's what their birthday celebrations were back then. It was just the, 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 the whole of perversion would come in and just they would do all sorts of things. They would have slave girls come in and, and the men could take advantage of whoever they wanted. They didn't care. And it was just horrible. When you read through Josephus, some of the things that they did, it's just horrendous. They would actually have a dinner party and they would actually bring people in and have them crucified in front of the dinner party for entertainment. Then they would bring those who were being crucified, they're up there, you know, dying on this stick. They would bring their loved ones in before them and slay them, slice their throats and kill them right before them because they couldn't do anything because they were on the cross. Horrible. And that was for mere entertainment at some of these parties. Well, we see the sick nature of this, and the Bible kind of tempers everything down. So you can just let your imagination run wild if you want. Don't encourage that. But, you know, this isn't just a little birthday party. It says, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, by her first husband, danced before them and pleased Herod. Now you say, well... Okay, that's a cultural thing. Come on. I mean, you know, you go to Jerusalem now. You go over to Israel. You see people dancing, whatever. But what kind of dancing is that? It's, it's communal dancing. It's, they're in a circle and they're jumping. You know, this is not the kind of dancing we're talking about here. This is not the kind of dancing we're talking about. And that word please doesn't mean that Herod sat back and said, oh, she's a fine dancer. <laughs> that's not what that's talking about. It means that he was somehow sexually aroused by this young girl, probably 12 to 14 years of age. Sensual dance. I often thought of this passage when Mother's Day comes around. Because <laughs> see, this gal, uh, Josephus gives her the name uh, Solomon. That's what her name is. This gal was basically influenced by her mother, who was a very wicked lady, obviously. She has a grudge in her heart, and she's just, you know, against John, and, and she's going to use any means possible to take him out, to get her way. Her husband hasn't been helpful up to this point, because really John hasn't done anything other than speak out about him. He's thrown in prison unjustly, even at that. He couldn't kill him because of the crowd, and so this lady comes up with this scheme, Herodias comes up with this scheme. You know what, I'm going to, this party, when they're all nice and drunk, that's basically what they did. Everybody's plastered, everybody's just not themselves, influenced by alcohol. Grabs her daughter and says, hey, I've got something. I want you to go and I want you to do, you know, do one of your dances. Obviously, probably the mom taught her this stuff, which kind of tells us the kind of influence that a mother can have on her children, good and bad. It says, the dance danced before them, and it pleased Herod. That in and of itself, that it was pleasing to Herod, shows you how far Herod had fallen. I mean, because <clears throat> here is a young girl... Now, they had girls come to, ladies come to this party, but, you know, they had some kind of a standard, I guess you could say. They were slave girls, and they were a little older, and they weren't children, and this kind of stuff. I mean, they were, but this is a kid. This is 12 to 14 years of age, which would have been a young woman at that time, but still, that's a young girl. And he's so out of his mind, he says that he gets aroused by this, and it says that, therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Boy, there's a lot in that, isn't there? 
He promised with an oath, here's a ruler, a governor of an area of a group of people under the authority of Rome, and in front of all his drunken guests, he's drunk himself, he promises this young girl who's got him sexually aroused, I'll give you whatever you want. Verse 8, it says, So she, having been prompted by her mother, prompted by her mother, the influence we can have on our children, good or bad. I mean, can't you just see this playing out? Here's a birthday party. You know, back then it's kind of a perverted kind of thing. And all this drinking, everybody's just partying it up. There's music, it's loud, all this stuff. And Herodias calls her daughter aside and, hey, go over there to the head table and do, do one of your dances. And he does, she does. She goes over there and does one of her dances, catches the attention of everybody there. Herod gets all excited. And, you know why? I'm going to give you anything you want. So having been prompted by her mother, everybody's watching this, She said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. I mean, mean, how sick is that? I mean, can you imagine being over for somebody's Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, you'd be offended. If, you know... I mean, I mean, some may be offended if the, the, the football game would be on. Some may be offended if there was wine. Some people might be offended if there was a music playing that wasn't Christian music. I mean, can you imagine if it was just an all-out drunken brawl? I mean, that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? That, that would be just bad. But look at what happens. They have this little girl come out and do this sensual dance. Everybody gets, and then verse 8, hey, you promised I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it says in verse 9, the king was sorry. Like I said, that's a very generous use of the word king because he wasn't. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, the influence of his friends, the influence of the company that he kept. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. So many words. The king was sorry. I bet the king probably had some kind of a, even a, maybe a loose relationship with John the Baptist. Because this guy was kind of intriguing. He always wanted to know the supernatural stuff, all this stuff that was happening. So I can imagine him, like in the New Testament, where we, or in, in, where we see with Christ, and one of the rulers that confronted Christ, they, they were intrigued by him. So they wanted dialogue with him. They wanted to talk to him. In that case, Christ wouldn't talk. But here, maybe they've had some dialogue back and forth. And can you imagine the conversations they had? Maybe he realized, hey, this guy's not a bad guy. He just ticked off my wife. So I've got to deal with him. I've got to put him in prison. Here comes this girl at the prompting of her mother. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. There's something about decapitation that is just very demeaning. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you can shoot somebody in the head and kill them. You could stab somebody in the heart and kill them. You could drown somebody. You could do. But when you're cutting somebody's head off, I mean, that's just sick. I mean, you know, that's, you, you know, and then you, you expand it to this whole thing with, you know, the Taliban and, and all those, those folks. What do they do? They decapitate people. Because they know that's, that's a demeaning thing to do to somebody. You're not going to recover from that. Last time I checked, there was never a head transplant done. Face transplant, but not a head transplant. Be impossible. So the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, all the influence around him. 
He commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and he had John beheaded in prison. I mean, John's probably just, do, 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 you know, Kevin, prison, you know, okay, God. And all of a sudden, hey, what's up? You know, he probably knew the jailer. Ah, I got some bad news. <laughs> Come with me. Lost his head. And his head was brought on a platter. This was something that was done on occasion in their culture, in their time. When a king sent out an order for someone to be executed, they needed proof that it was done. And the only proof that was really sure proof was that person's head. Because once you got somebody's head and it's decapitated from the body, you know that person's not going to be around anymore. They couldn't bring a finger, they couldn't bring a hand, they had to bring a head. And that's what this girl demanded at the prompting of her mother. And here they are at this drunken kind of Bacchanalia feast, all this crazy stuff going on. And here in the girl walks, probably holding the platter out as the blood drips off the edges. They gave her to her. She took it right to her mother. Sick. Just a disgusting story. Then his disciples, it says in verse 12, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Well, what I want us to look at this morning quickly is the character of these three individuals. The character of these three individuals we looked at. First, the saint, John the Baptist. I want you to understand that John the Baptist, first of all, he was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. The Bible clearly tells us that over and over and over again. And I think that it's, it's important to understand that we're not talking about somebody who is disrespectful, not talking about somebody here who did something wrong. He was a righteous man. In Mark 6.20 and Matthew 11.11, it says that, and it was demonstrated by his separated lifestyle. First of all, he was not like the world in the way that he dressed. Remember, he, he wore weird clothes. He lived out in the wilderness. He ate honey and locusts. It was demonstrated by a separated lifestyle, but it was also demonstrated by his self-denial. It tells us in Luke 1.15 that John had taken a Nazarite vow. In a Nazarite vow, along with not drinking wine or liquor, the vow also involved never cutting your hair touching anything such as a dead body that was ceremonially unclean. His self-denial was purposeful. It was for the sake of ministry and an aid in his own physical and his spiritual discipline. So his righteousness was demonstrated by the way he lived and by the way he denied himself of certain things. He was also an outspoken man. He was an outspoken man. We see that in the story. I mean, it says that he went over and over and over again to confront Herod about this sin in his life. He did it in public as well as in private. Are we outspoken for the Lord in our lives? There's a show on TV. I saw a glimpse of it the other night called What Would You Do or something like that. And it's, they had video clips of, one clip was two pilots at a bar. They're actors, but they're dressed in their pilot suits, and they're sitting at this bar, and they're just drinking it up. Yeah, yeah, i got to catch that uh, plane about an hour to Atlanta. And they're talking, and people at the bar are like, you're a pilot? But nobody would say anything to them. It was amazing. One, one couple finally said, one couple even drank with them, for goodness sake. And then they had another instance where they had an uh, actor who had Down syndrome and he was working in a grocery store. And he was literally a Down syndrome actor. And uh, they had people come through the line who were also actors. This is in New York. And as the kid's trying to bag the stuff, 
you know, these actors would, you know, hey, come on, retard, hurry up. What do they got you working here for? Just awful comments. And some of the people standing in line would just stand there. They wouldn't say a word. They wouldn't say anything. And then other people would just totally go off irate. One guy came from the back of the store. I mean, he was so ticked off at this one guy. And, they're, you know, and then they'd let him know. They'd let him in on it and say, no, they're all actors, including this kid. And we're trying to... And it was interesting. But are we outspoken for the Lord in public and in private? Ask yourself that. When's the last time you had an opportunity to speak up for the Lord, but you didn't do it? John was also a courageous man. He feared God more than man. It tells us that in uh, Matthew 10, 28. It also tells us that he loved God more than life. That's what we're called to do. Philippians 1, 21 tells us that. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. See, John the Baptist understood that clearly. He didn't shy away from confronting somebody who could have him beheaded. He also loved others more than himself. And we're called to do that as well in the book of Philippians. I think it's an important lesson that we can learn from John the Baptist and his character. But now look at the sinner. Look at Herod. And you're going to see almost the opposite on every point. First of all, Herod was wicked. Herod was wicked. He seduced his own brother's wife. He wrongly imprisoned John. He contributed to the corruption of his stepdaughter, his niece. And he ordered the murder of John without even a trial. All against Roman rule, all that. He, he was a wicked man. But I want you to understand, in Romans 12, 3, it says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, just because you would never sleep with your brother's wife, or just because you would never have someone wrongly imprisoned, or just because you never corrupted to the, contributed to the corruption of your niece or your stepdaughter, and you've never murdered somebody without a trial. Don't think yourself innocent. Because sin, beloved, is not what we do. Sin is not what we do, it's who we are. And we need to remember that. I remember that when we think of being, just to jump back a second, outspoken for Christ. I remember a, a story told by Charles Colson. And when he was in the White House with President Nixon. And he said he would witness something very interesting. When people, visitors would come to meet with President Nixon, the President of the United States, in the Oval Office. He's a special legal counsel, you know, for the President. And Colson would gather these guests of the, of the President outside the Oval Office. And when they would talk to each other out there in the, the gathering room, you would hear things that... They would never say face-to-face to the president. But he said it was always the same. In the reception room, they would rehearse their angry lines and reassure one another. I'm going to tell him what's going on. He's got to do something about this. We're not going to let him get away with this. Whatever the issue was, that's how they talked. And Colson said when the aide would come and escort these people in, they'd set their jaws and they'd march toward the door. But once that door swung open, and the aide announced, the president will now see you. He says, it was as if they had suddenly sniffed some intoxicating fragrance. Most became almost self-conscious about even stepping on the plush blue carpet on which was sculpted the great seal of the United States. And Mr. Nixon's voice and presence, like any president's, filled the room. 
And he says this, Invariably, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. See, it's sad to report that none were more meek than the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Of all the people, they should have been the ones who were speaking out about this. But because Herod was a powerful individual, they wilted in his presence. Do we do the same? I trust we don't. But Herod was wicked. He was a very, very wicked man. He was also deceptive, sly. See, John was outspoken. He was right, you know, he was who you, he was right to your face. But Herod wasn't. He was crafty. He was shrewd. He was hypocritical, devious. It says he wanted to kill John, but he couldn't because he feared the people. In Mark 6.20, Mark tells us that Herod liked to listen to John. That's why I kind of said that maybe they had some kind of a relationship, a friendship even, over these dialogues that they would share. Can you imagine what they talked about? Here you have somebody who's righteous, who's self-controlled, preaching judgment to come. And then you have somebody like Herod who is so filled with sin. But Herod was also not only deceptive and wicked, but he was also weak. Herod was weak. I think we need to remember that Herod was more interested in saving face than doing what is right. That's very practical for us. So many times, we don't choose to do the right thing because we don't want to be embarrassed or we don't want to be, you know, um, put somebody else out or whatever. We, we, we just want to save our own face instead of doing the right thing. In Jude 1.16, it says, There are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. That's almost how Herod was. He had conversations with John, and you could probably hear him say, well, I see your point, John, but, you know, I mean, kind of dialoguing with him. But Herod was also superstitious. Not only wicked, deceptive, and weak, but he was very, very superstitious. And you know what? Many people who reject God's truth, but nevertheless have an awareness of right and wrong, become superstitious when they do wrong. That's just the way it is. You ever talk to somebody, they're not even a Christian. I mean, they don't even go to church or whatever. But you start talking to them and they'll say things. Well, you know, whatever goes around comes around. You know, say words like that. Why do they say things like that? Because they're superstitious. A lot of people follow their horoscopes and all that kind of silly stuff. Somehow they believe the most spiritual idea when it comes along because they're not tied in to the truth. Whenever we reject God's truth, we open ourselves up to Satan's lies. And that's a very serious thing. It's sad, but it happens when people reject God. Well, the last character we want to look at, person we want to look at this morning, is the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's not really mentioned much in this story. If you look in Matthew... Chapter 14, he's only mentioned in the first and the last verse there of our, con- our text, verse 13. It says that Herod, Herod heard the report about Jesus. And in verse 13, it says that uh, they took the body, in verse 12, they took and they went and told Jesus, and Jesus heard it, he departed. Um, who is this Christ? Who is Jesus? Well, first of all, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we'll close with this, verse 1 and 14, it says that He is God incarnate. He is God incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. Word is another uh, way of describing Christ. 
and became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God incarnate. He is not just some other God, beloved, small g. He is the God incarnate. He is also the Lamb of God. In verse 29 of John 1, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming, the man who was beheaded here, toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not only God incarnate, but he is the Lamb of God, and he's also the eternal Son of God. In verse 34, 1 John, or John chapter 1, it says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. That's who Jesus is. Well, what has he done? He's lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 says that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points he's tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was perfect. He lived a sinless life. He also died as a substitute for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.19 That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He also rose from the dead to secure our eternal life for all those who believe. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. He also intercedes on behalf of his children. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he also lives to make intercessions for them. I mean, what can we learn from this passage this morning? You know what? We live in a sick society, beloved. We live in a sin-saturated society. And this stuff probably goes on all the time, behind closed doors. You hear some of these scandals that these politicians get into. It just makes you sick. Or even some of these scandals that religious leaders get into. I mean, you're thinking, what are they thinking? There's a disconnect. Somehow there's a disconnect. They're they're confronted with the truth of the Word of God, and somehow, even though they may be teaching the Word of God, there's this major disconnect, and somehow they're lost in their sin. I pray that that may not be the case for us here this morning. I pray that as we look at John the Baptist, Herod, and Jesus, that we can come to an honest understanding that we're all great sinners, And we all need the great Savior who we can call upon in repentance and in faith and ask Him to save us. And He will do that. He would have done that for somebody as sick as Herod. But you have to come to the end of yourself, have a proper understanding of who He is. You have to understand the payment that He made on your behalf. And once you get to that point, you're desperate for him and he can save you. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. Father, as we looked at the death of this great prophet of God, really, his own truth-telling, his own righteousness sealed his death. It's because of what he did that he died. It's because of what he said that he he ended up with his head on a platter. Lord, I pray that we would not faint, that we would not grow weary, that we would not become fearful. When there may come a day, an hour, a time when we are called to tell the truth, when we are called to present the gospel in its entirety without excuse, without apology, that we would not shy away from that. 
that when we're called upon to do the right thing in any given circumstance, that we would do the thing that most honors you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at this portrait of Herod and you see how far he had fallen in sin. Just the perverse behavior. And yet in many of our churches today, there are men, even women, who are dealing with perversity, that are dealing with sin deep in their heart that nobody sees. And they can come and dress up and put a smile on their face, but God, you see their heart. You see what goes on behind closed doors. Father, I pray that we would come to you in repentance, knowing that you're a God who is willing to forgive us because of Christ's work on the cross. If there's anyone here who's yet to trust you in faith and believe in your name, I pray that they would cry out to you, even this morning, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. I don't want to trust in myself anymore. I want to give it up for you. I want to let go and let you be the ruler and Lord of my life that you desire to be. That's a prayer he'll answer this morning. Father, we ask for strength as we go out into this sin-stained world that we would stand for righteousness as John the Baptist did. That we would be willing to stand in that hard place, unwilling to bend or bow or compromise. We pray your spirit would empower us to do that. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.